two great psalms there, Anne Place, in, in the offertory from Psalm 8, the majesty and glory of your name, and then Psalm 139, which is where we will be today. Now, don't think that we could possibly get through all of 139. In fact, I had grand schemes and plans that we would tackle much more than it ends up that we're going to go through. Um, but it's one of those psalms that is just full of so many good things. And it's so many good things about the character of God. And, and it's the way that they are related for us. These, these I, I don't want to call them obscure. They're, they're probably, how about humanly... Um, the not understandable by finite minds because our minds are finite. We only have so much capacity. Yet the Lord is infinite. And there are doctrines taught in this psalm such as omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence that we can hardly grasp. I am here today. Okay, In, in an hour I will be someplace else. Yet God is here, he is over there, and he knows where each of us will be an hour from now, and he is already there, because time is for us, it is not for our Heavenly Father. Now, have I made that clear to you? Okay. I don't want to confuse you, I just want to, you know. So you see the difficulty in trying to wrap our human minds around the infinite, But yet the author of Psalm 139 relates these very difficult concepts about God's character and his presence and his power. And he relates them in in his experiences of life and the way that he understands them as somebody the Lord has worked his will and his mercy in. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I will read... The entirety of the psalm, even though we're only going to study the first six verses today, but the psalm as a whole is is so good, every time we study some portion of it, we're going to read it all, because that's the way I like it. Okay? So, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and for this glimpse at who you are, and and, and, and these great qualities and characteristics of you that, that are not added to you, but are simply part of you. Help us to understand them in our lives, Lord, and what they mean. Open our eyes by the Holy Spirit to your word, that these things might live in us, that we might therefore live in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 139, for the choir director, it is a psalm of David. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Now just we'll stop there for a second and see what David does. He says all these things, and he knows all these things, so what does he do? I I, I just can't grasp it. You can just see David writing these things and going, well, this is beyond me. What can I do? And he continues, where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will not be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. For thou dost form my inward parts, thou dost weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. O that thou would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. I do not hate those who hate thee, O Lord. I do not loathe those who rise up against thee. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. That's a gutsy prayer at the end. Request, isn't it? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any, I think the, the psalm we sang said, wicked way in me. As if it would be hard to find. Okay, let's, what, what did the, the passage in our uh, unison reading say? Who can understand the human heart? It's wicked beyond everything, desperately sick. And then David says, search me and know my heart. How many of us really want the Lord to know our hearts? Now, as, as good believers, we all go, yes, I want the Lord to know my heart. I know he already knows it, and, and there's nothing I can hide from him. But think about it for a moment. What's in there? What did you think about yesterday? What did you think about the day before? Ten years ago, what were you thinking about? Do you really want the Lord to know those things? Yes, he knows those things. But when we say, and and the psalmist here, David says, search me and know my heart, he's not just asking the Lord to do what the Lord already does. He's asking the Lord to help him see those things which are in his heart. Those things which I have pushed to the side, those things which I do not want to look at, Lord. Because we all have them in our hearts. There are all those things that we have done or continue to do that... In our mind, we just kind of blank out and, and compartmentalize to someplace else. And when we say, Lord, search me and know me, we are also saying, Lord, help me to know myself. Look into my life. Show me these things. And I know that I don't want to see them, but I have to. Because we are called to confess all things to the Lord. Those things which 
cling to us. Those things which we love but don't want to give up. Those old friends of sin which, which hang on to us and say, no, come to me. I mean, this is good. Okay, you will enjoy this. And we're saying, no, Lord, I want to cling to you. Show me these things. That's a gutsy prayer. It's like praying for patience. Okay, because you know the only way you're going to get patience is by trial, being tested. Your patience will be tested. It's like a muscle. Grow muscle. <laughs> The only way it's going to grow is if I take that weight and I go like this and I go like this. And afterwards I go, oh, where's the Bengay? And, and then I, go, I have to go again two more times in that week. That's the only way that muscle gets stronger. You want to know your heart. You want to have that heart laid bare before the Lord. Then you pray, Lord, show me these things and they are painful to us and we are called to confess them. The psalmist is really talking about his personal experience with these things. These great truths of the Lord, the the omnis, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and these things, the the psalmist David is saying, these things are real in my life. They are not abstract. When I go and ask the Lord and I pray, show me these things, I know he knows them and I know he can show me. And if I'm willing to lay myself before the Lord bare and say, Lord, I'm yours, and, and, and I know you know these things, Lord, help me know them. That's a hard prayer. Because we don't usually want to go there. We don't usually want to go there and examine those things. But yet these almost incomprehensible doctrines for us are made clear in a personal way in this psalm. So we're only going to really cover the first six verses today, and then in other times we will look at more. So in, in 1961, J.B. Phillips wrote a book that's called Your God is Too Small. How many people have ever read that book? A couple? Heard about that book? Would be afraid to read that book? <laughs> Your God is Too Small. He was speaking to the modern church, the modern church in 1961. Now... I was born in 1961, so you can tell how far back that was. And he was saying the problem with the church in 1961 is they do not have a large enough view of God. Their theology had so shrunken God, so reduced him to look more and more like man. Hey, I've got weaknesses, therefore God must have them. Okay, I have limitations, therefore God must have them. They could not wrap their minds around the fact that God does not have weaknesses. He does not have limitations. There is no limit to his power, scope, authority, anything like that. And J.B. Phillips writes, your God is too small. And you've got a problem here, church. Because you have forgotten that the Lord is capable of doing anything that he wants. Anytime, anywhere. He calls us to have faith in that. And Psalm 139 is a cure for a small God. Okay? Psalm 139 is a cure for a small God. J.I. Packer said, This is where most of us go astray. Our thoughts of God are not great enough. We fail to reckon with the reality of his limitless wisdom and power. Limitless. If you've ever seen ESPN2, you know, they show all kinds of the, the weirder sports. 
The strongest man in the world competition. Have you ever seen that? Okay. Now, those guys are huge. And, and one of the tests is how many, um, what are they, beer barrels they can throw over a, a 12-foot thing over the top of their head. Now, really, is that a real test? Well, there's, it's entertaining, certainly, and I'm never going to throw a beer barrel um, that I think I will ever. But, but we think, oh, how strong those guys are. But there's a limit to their power because sooner or later they get to a point where they cannot get one over the thing and that's the end of that, that round. God has an unlimited amount of power. There is nothing that can stop him, nothing that he cannot do. And, and yet we are filled with a world of limited things. But yet God is unlimited. D.G. Barnhouse, who was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for many years, he wrote a variety of books, had a Bible study hour on the radio for many years, had graduated from Princeton, and this is probably, Barnhouse passed away back in the 60s or 70s, so this is maybe in the 40s, and he goes back to Princeton to preach in chapel, okay? Now, I've never been asked back to preach in any of the schools that I graduate from, and I know what that says about the schools. Sorry, that's anything about me, certainly. Um, well, he goes back, and his professor, the professor that he was most frightened of, because we all have that, okay? Somebody who we walked into the class, and we worked extra hard because he had great expectations for us. Well, Barnhouse is, is preaching, and he sees Dr. Wilson in the back, and then afterwards, he's, he goes to the door, and, and everybody files out, and Dr. Wilson comes by and says, uh, Donald, I, I just come to hear my students preach once. And if you ever come here again, I won't be here. But I want you to know I come because I want to hear if they are big godders or small godders. And he said, you are a big godder. You have an image of God who can do anything, and that will shape your ministry. There are men who come back here and preach who are small godders. They have a very limited view of what God is capable of, and their ministry will always reflect that. So the question for us is, what do we think God can do? Can God do miracles? Yes. Can God do anything he wants? If he couldn't, he wouldn't be God. Okay, can Randy do anything he wants? No. And that's important to know. He is God and I am not. So this is also the psalm. Psalm 139, the second stanza, 7 through 12, where the poem comes, the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven. This is where the idea that Thompson had to come up with that poem. And, and as we look at that section, we'll, we'll review that poem just briefly. So in this first section, we're looking at one of the, what we'll call the perfections of God. And that is his omniscience, his knowledge of everything. There is nothing that is outside of his knowledge. God knows and sees everything. Okay? This is not just a doctrine that David sees and comprehends in a human fashion. It is a doctrine that he lives out in his life and in the way that he looks at the world and does everything. A.W. Pink describes omniscience in this way. God knows all things, and he knows them in their perfection. He knows the totality of everything without disruption. He knows everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, present, and future. 
He is perfectly acquainted with every detail of every life of every person who has, is, and ever will be conceived. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, and never overlooks anything. Does that cover it? Oh, there's more. Don't worry. Okay, there's more of everything that we'll see. Now, now in the news recently, we've been concerned about how has the NSA gone too far? Do they listen to our telephone calls? Do they gather our information? Um, I read an article this week that talked about uh, them developing a, a radio system that could listen or gather information from your computer. Okay, now maybe this concerns us or may, maybe this doesn't. Um, is it concerning, this concerning to us, that, that uh, the government is involved in more and more areas of our lives, from how much fat we can consume to how big our soda cup should be, uh, how big a car we should have, how much gas we can use, how far we can drive, how much water you can use in your toilet. Okay? All these things, the government knows and regulates it. They want to put these, you know, the conspirators say they want to put these thermostats in your house that will regulate the temperature of your house by somebody else. Because they know the right temperature for you. Okay? Now, I know some of you are very divergent in your temperature needs at home. Okay? Some of you wear sweaters and coats all the time while the other spouse is wearing shorts. Okay? It's just the way it is. But the government knows best. Now, take that and apply it to God. God knows what's best. Okay, more than any Orwellian bureaucrat or plutocrat or autocrat, he knows everything about you. What temperature should your house be? He already knows. Did your thermostat break? He knows. Okay, how much water is in your toilet that's needed to flush? He knows. How far did you drive today? He knows. There's nothing that we can do or conceive of that God does not already know. Should you have a 32-ounce cup for your Slurpee? God knows. Okay, God knows whether you should or not. Okay, it doesn't matter what you did because God saw what you did and God knew the attitude of your heart, gentlemen. Here we are. We're out with our wives, and we're sitting in a restaurant, and 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 a, a woman walks by, who God has created in a wonderful way. How about that? Okay, and we are, are looking at the menu, and we all have a glass, and we we look over like that. And then we look at our wives to see if she saw that we looked at God's beautiful creation. And then we go back. It doesn't matter whether our wives saw us because the Lord saw us do that. Not only did he see us do that, he knew what we were thinking when we did it. He knew our motivation and attitude. That's frightening. Now, ladies, I don't want to leave you out. So I came up with an idea for you. Randy walks by your table. <laughs> and, and you just study your menu. You know, I don't like that. We have these things. You know, ladies, uh, what, what, you, do you, uh, I, I don't know. Do you take information that you overhear and, 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 and some gossip and run with it and, and, and the attitude of your heart is suddenly hardened to these people because you misunderstood? And there, There's so many options out there where we think nobody else knows, but yet the Lord knows. He knows 
Look, Santa Claus knows when you've been sleeping, knows when you're awake, knows if you've been bad or good, so you better be good for goodness sake. God's way better than Santa. He knows way more about us than Santa. A.W. Tozer said, God has never learned from anyone. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not previously possess from all eternity? He would then be imperfect and less than God. To think that God would need to sit at the feet of another as a student and teacher is reduce him to other than God. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all minds, all spirits, and all creatures. He knows all desires, all intents, all secrets of all hearts, all thrones, all dominions, all space, all time, all good, all evil, and every motion of every being. He never wonders about anything. And if he asks us a question, it's, because, it's not because he doesn't know it, it's because he wants us to know it. Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? It's not as if God didn't know those things. He knew them. He wanted Adam to know it. How many times have you been faced with things that the Lord just raises in your face and you have to answer that question? Let's turn to Romans chapter 11 real fast and look at that little passage there. Romans 11. Verse 33, it is important once again for us to remember God is God and I am not God. It sounds obvious, but it can be very difficult to get through our heads. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's almost the same as the the passage from David. I give up. I just can't grasp it. How unfathomable, how unsearchable are his judgments. It sounds clear and and, and cogent to us that God is God and I am not. But we put ourselves in his position on a regular basis. We do so when we think that God owes us something. We do so when we don't think he's treating us as we should be treated or as we deserve. Every time we act against his will in sin, we are putting ourselves above him. We violate the truth of his omniscience every time we try to every time we grumble or try to circumvent his will as if we could get around what he has already planned and without him knowing it. Every time our pride moves in our lives and we get puffed up, we are flying in the face of God's omniscience. We undermine it every time we think we should act against what the Bible says or think that the way that God has acted throughout history is somehow unjust. It's not fair that he loved Jacob and hated Esau. It's not right that he slaughtered the firstborn of all the Egyptians. He didn't even give them warning. I mean, yeah, the Israelites he gave warning, but what about all the Egyptians? It was just Pharaoh that was holding him. Was it unjust for the Lord to take the firstborn of everyone? 
It's not right that he commanded the Israelites to slaughter the Canaanites in the promised land. Women, children, everything. It is not right, it's unjust that the Lord would take Uzzah's life because the Ark of the Covenant is on the cart and the ox missteps and it goes into a little rut and it looks like the Ark is going to fall off. So what does he do? He just puts his hand up to steady it so it doesn't fall in the dirt. And what does the Lord do? He kills him. He takes his life. That's unfair. We're putting ourselves in the place of God when we do that. God is God, and I am not, and I am not. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. God knows everything. That's the basis for his wisdom. And he knows all things exhaustively. He doesn't just know about all things. It's not like he's the jack of all, the, all trades and master of none. He's the jack of all trades. He's the master of all trades. He's the master of all knowledge. Nothing gets by him anywhere at any time. He knows every reaction going on in every star, in every galaxy. Now, we can say that and go, oh, that's really cool, but we can't get our minds around it. We can't even know the numbers of the galaxies out there, let alone the number of the stars. But he has what? Named them and placed them. I hope you get the understanding that this is a big God we're talking about today. He knows your thoughts before you speak them. He knows when you are being formed in your mother's womb. He knows the exact number of your days. It's all from Psalm 139. We go to Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Laid bare to the eyes of him. The word means that there are no disguises. Everything is ripped away so that he sees the essence of all things. I come to you and I say, how you doing? And you go, great. We really don't want to know how each other are doing. Or we would stop and, and take each other by the hand and say, tell me what's going on in your life. And, and sit down and have a conversation. But we pass one another and say, how you're doing? And you say, great. And I don't know whether you're telling me the truth or whether your heart is dying that day. The Lord rips away those things. He knows your heart is dying. He knows what you're struggling with. You can't hide those things from him. All things are laid bare to the eyes of the Lord. Now the meaning, there's more meanings of that word. It's used also, let me read it again. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid, are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. It's not only a ripping away of disguises, but it also carries the image, and there are two more images that, that we have. One is that of a wrestler in a wrestling hold where it's grabbed, the, the wrestler grabs the other wrestler around the throat to the place that they cannot move. It's the same word. To be laid bare also means to grab one another in this fashion. So it's as if you are grabbed by the Lord around the throat and made to look at him. You cannot move except your eyes, and, and the Lord is there before you. All things within you are laid bare, and the Lord has a hold of you, and you cannot look away. 
You cannot move. You are there and you cannot escape the gaze of our Heavenly Father. The other image was used in the courtroom in the first century. When an accused would come, often a person who is guilty has what kind of countenance? Okay? When your child comes to you with cookies on their lips and you say, were you in the cookie jar? And they, they go, no. Their, their head goes down, the guilt is there. In the first century, they had a little device that they would put around the accused and it had a little knife here. And they would put the knife right here and tie it so that the accused had to look up. Look at the people who were accusing him. Look at the people that he had done wrong to. Okay, They couldn't look away, couldn't look to the side, but had to stare straight ahead. That's the way laid bare to the eyes is also used. So you have God holding you around the neck. You have, in a sense, this dagger placed right here so that you must look. Your eyes must be focused ahead of you. The criminal under judgment could not look away. They had to look there. Don't ever think for a moment that you're going to live your life in a way that God is not aware of and that one day you will not have to look him straight in the eye and he will say, he won't ask you because he doesn't know, well, did you do this? He will ask you that question because he wants you to know that you did that. God's exhaustive knowledge of us should be both frightening and comforting. Should be both frightening and comforting. It's frightening because we can't hide anything from God. Numbers chapter 32, be sure that your sin will find you. How many of us, and you don't have to volunteer this information, how many of us have done sins that nobody else knows? Okay, they were secret to us. We have done wrong and we think we got away with them. We think we are still getting away with them. Whatever it may be, God knows what we have done. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Abraham tells, or the Lord tells Abraham he's going to have a son and Sarah's over in the other tent going, I'm 90 years old, we're not going to have a son. And the Lord says, why is Sarah laughing? There's nothing that we can hide from him. So it should be frightening in that sense that everything is laid bare before him. But it also should be comforting in that God's exhaustive knowledge of us, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our sins, he knows those things that we do in secret, he knows the good and the bad and the ugly and still what? He loves us. He says, come to me. Come to me. Go back to one, Psalm 139. He says, I have made you. I have made you, and I have a relationship for you. God knows absolutely everything about me. He knows my actions. He knows when I sit down and when I get up. He knows where I go. He knows when I lie down. He is intimately acquainted with all my ways. He knows my words even before I say them. He knows my thoughts. His hand is upon me. There is no place I can go to escape the Lord. And David says, I can't even get my head around it. He doesn't say it in that way. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful. For me, it's not frightening. 
in the sense of I, I stand and shiver before the Lord, he says it is too wonderful for me. We see plenty of images and, and examples of the Lord and how he knows these things. He knows the desires of our hearts, and, and these are played out, and, and, and we won't go and look at those illustrations today. But remember the amazing thing is that God, who knows us so thoroughly, who knows every awful thought that we have, every desire of our hearts, every good thing, every bad thing, still desires this relationship with us. He wants us for his very own. He wants us and calls us by name and says, come to me. Randy, I want you to come to me. I want you to lay everything before me because I already know it. But I want you to understand the depth of my knowledge of you. Your heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord says, I can understand it. And yet, I sent my son for you. Let's pray. Lord, so fabulous that our minds can't even get around this idea that you know all of these things about us and you say, come unto me. Not only do you say, come unto me, you grab hold of us and you draw us unto yourself. You say, I have called you by name. I know your heart, I know your wickedness, I know your shortcomings, I know your failings, I know everything about you, but come unto me and I will give you rest. I will give you salvation. I will grant you grace and mercy that you don't deserve, but yet you can only find it here and I have it for you in abundance. Grace and love like this is just too wonderful for us to understand but yet it is real. Lord, in these coming moments, speak to our hearts that we might have some grip and some grasp and understanding of a love that is this great. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.